Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my smiley co-host Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, good to see you again, sir. It was great to see you, Sean. Uh, I feel like today we're gonna have the best recording with the Rule Twenty folks. Just a hunch. I have a feeling it's going to last just the perfect amount of time. We're gonna get the perfect amount of information. <laughs> So as Teos is hinting, we are going to be interviewing uh, some employees of Roll20, uh, specifically Morgan Buck and Andrew Sarles, and they are going to tell us about what's happening on Roll20 and ask and answer our questions, including some that you have asked. But before we get to all of that goodness, we are going to give you some news and some opinions. And we are going to start with our listener corner. After our discussion, just the introduction of the 5e DMG, we had tons of people commenting at us and discussing with us on our Patreon Discord all sorts of things about uh, about the DMG and what should be in it and what shouldn't be in it. And it would be impossible to have that full discussion but I grabbed one comment from Joy Wright via Twitter to, to give us something to discuss today. And uh, Joey asked, what do you think about the idea of the DMG and the player's handbook as advanced rules? Isn't the game covered in the free basic rules? I like the DMG, but never worried about it teaching me how to play or to DM. And by the way, love the show. Well, thank you, Joey, for that, and thank you for the question. I want to give Teos the first crack at this if he so chooses. Sure. If not, I will definitely jump in. I, I always am up to the task. Um, I think, well, there are two answers to this to me. One is a marketing answer, and the other is a, you know, what do DMs want answer. Marketing-wise it's really dangerous to say, hey, you've got to buy this one thing and then buy these other things, or these other things don't work without the first thing. And that's some of what we were talking about last time when we talked about the idea of the starter set as it dovetails the DMG and player's handbook, right? The intro to the DMG suggests that you've read the starter set. And that's a bit of a problem because now you're saying that all three things must be purchased. And that's not great. And, and in fact, after recording, I looked at at various places on D&D Beyond that either did or did not mention the starter set in relation to the DMG and PHB. So even that story is not consistent, right? And, and so I think that's where it's really hard to pull it off. If you're really going to say you must buy this starter set before you can move on to the rest, that's hard um, from a marketing perspective. And then from the perspective of what DMs want, I think that ideally... You want to be able to pick up any one of those and have enough to get you started. All right, what do you think, Sean? Yeah, isn't, isn't the game covered in the free basic rules? Yes, it is. But the free basic rules do not teach you how to be a dungeon master. Could you make those free basic rules coverage of how to be a dungeon master? You could, but then they go from being something that that is intended just to teach the basic rules to something that teaches you how to dungeon master. And those are two separate things. 
we have to always remember that the game part of this hobby we call Dungeons and Dragons runs off the back of Dungeon Masters. Without Dungeon Masters, you can't play the game or you're going to have a very hard time playing the game. The growth of the game part of the hobby is going to be contingent on getting enough Dungeon Masters to serve the needs of the players. If you don't continually convince people to DM and then teach those people how to DM, the game will stagnate. So if the free basic rules are going to be the place to teach DMs, then they're going to need to change. What I want to see is, and what I hear people say is, well, we'll let third-party publishers or creators teach people how to play. We'll let the YouTubers teach you how to DM. We will let other books teach you how to DM. And that's okay. But if you're Wizards of the Coast, you do not want third-party people teaching you how to your DMs how to play. You want to be the one teaching your DMs how to DM. Why? A million reasons. Are there good third-party publish, publishers and content creators who do that? Absolutely. Are they always going to love your game? Are you maybe do something to upset them? Mm -hmm. And now the people who are following them for good DMing advice are going to be hearing about other games or hearing about how terrible you are. That's not what you want. <laughs> so you want mm -hmm. to be teaching the people how to DM as Wizards of the Coast. Let the advanced stuff, let the niche stuff be done by third-party creators, third-party mm -hmm. publishers. Uh, th that's the best answer I can give. Yeah. You want the Dungeon Master's Guide to do what it says and guide Dungeon Masters. Yeah, and, and I think of from time immemorial, you have all these stories of people who will say, you know, my parents bought me the red box and I looked at it and I didn't get it and it sat on my shelf for three years. But then a friend of mine, you know, there's so many variations on those kinds of stories that start with essentially, if you if you recode it and write it in plain English, this product was crappy at telling me what to do. So I almost lost out on the opportunity. Well, there are lots of people who actually did lose out on the opportunity and didn't have that friend come by or the other thing that could have led them down the path to becoming a huge fan. So you need to break away that barrier so that the game is always super easy to run, right? So that that any of these products that you pick up tells you exactly what you need to get going. And it's the starter set and it's the player's handbook and it's the DMG and it's the adventures too. That beginning should be really easy to run. So you can just jump right into it because you hear that a lot too. I picked up Tomb of Annihilation and then I realized, wait, there are a lot of things I got to deal with. I'm in out of the abyss and there are all these NPCs right. I'm supposed to expertly role play. I'm way over my head, right? Like chapter one, any adventure yeah. should be easy. Who is it at game companies that deal the most with on-ramping and making accessible the rules? Um, sometimes it, it's the game designers. Sometimes the game designers are fully focused on that. Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it might be marketing people. Oftentimes it might be even you know other people, the social media people. Everyone has to work together at a game company to make this game accessible. And sometimes we as designers forget how inaccessible 
even a relatively simple game might be. As I teach games to college student writers, I, I think, oh, this game is simple. This game is easy. It's nowhere near as complicated as D&D. And then I try to explain it to them. And I realize I could spend six weeks doing this, and I still wouldn't even really scratch the surface of the complexity of this relatively simple game. And we as designers forget that. And we as designers focus on focus too much on people who already know how to play rather than thinking about people who are learning to play mm. or are trying to learn to teach other people how to play. Yeah. And we can't make the game simple enough for them. And if we want this game to grow, we need to make this game simple enough for them, or at least some version of this game. No, that was great. And, you know, I heard another comment, which uh, was from our friend Andy Demps. Uh, I think he made this on our Patreon Discord, uh, where he said that the, the format of Spelljammer, which will be also used for Planescape of these three separate books, he said, you know, that's a thing that I would love to see for the DMG where you'd have these three books and each one would cover different topics such that some of them might be really for when you're a beginner, but then these other books might be your go-to with tools and things like that. And I thought that was a really fascinating idea. What do you think? Yeah, that's the kind of outside the box, but inside the box set <laughs> thinking that we need when we design these games or redesign these games, yeah. right? Because you and I, we've gone through five plus Dungeon Master's Guides and it's always the same, right? It's always the big thick book and it always has this and it always has that. And just as An Andy said, you know, dividing it up into three books where this is how you learn to play, this is how you learn to DM, and this is the extra stuff about creating adventures and you can pull out each book separately. That's a it's a yeah. brilliant idea. One could be lore, right? There's so many ways you could you could cut it, and it's, it's a really yeah. neat. I love that concept. Andy needs to get mm -hmm. hired by Wizards. Or at That's least think about it that way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right now. Yep. So uh, thank you to Joey Wright for asking us that question. You can always send in your questions through all of the ways that we're going to talk about at the end of the show. But for now, let's get to our news and our commentary. And boy, did we get some stuff this week. We got a new Unearthed Arcana. 50 pages <laughs> of Unearthed Arcana. <clears throat> so we cannot cover all of that in just one news segment. We will look at some of the important things in future episodes. But for now, we are just going to give some general feedback and some of our summary thoughts on it. Uh, do you, would you like to start with any thoughts, Mr. Uh, Andia? Well, so I did I did commence down the path of reading it and, and also just looking at the high level of what's there. I mean, I, I actually, I went to work out on the treadmill and I thought, oh, you know, I will read this on the large iPad screen. But first I'll watch the video. I was done working out and the video wasn't over. That's how long this play test is. It takes them an hour to tell us what's in it. <laughs> so yeah. there's a lot there. And I think what they're trying to do is to speak to us a bit more. And they're trying to also give us some exciting reasons why we want this 2024 version. I think that they are doing a lot more hearing 
of what people are saying and, and of the cautions that people are kind of pronouncing out there, uh, the, the worries that they have that they're sharing. Um, so, so that's my high level take is that I think that they are trying to do a better job of this, uh, of this release to both make it exciting and speak to the concerns we have. what do you think? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And I, there are two Sean's here, right? There's the Sean, who's the player and, you know, the, the kid who plays D and D who mm -hmm. really wants to see all of these things. And wants to dig in and look at every little change. And then there's the game designer business person in the game industry who could not, who could care less about these changes in the, in the minutia of them. Mm -hmm. Because I just need to know what the final version is going to look like. We have no guarantee that anything that we see in these play tests will be the final version. I am ready and willing to pick over the gory details when I know that this is what I need to do in order to make compatible content mm -hmm. in the future. Until then, I just want you to do it. You've told me that now this is just going to be a polish of 5e. This is going to be 5e revised, not 6e, maybe not even 5.5, right? This is, this is going to be that. So I have 12 things on my plate right now reading a 50 page document to see that you've moved this one at, you know, ability from level 11 to level nine is not my time best spent. Well, and also, but do you think somewhat uh, that way? Because it feels to me, I don't know if you share this, this sense, it feels to me like a lot of this is done. And what I mean by that is D and D next would give us like a play test and it would be like, okay, we're all going to play through this experience, right? Because it would be characters, monsters, an adventure, and we'd play through it and we'd give feedback. And the next version would be wildly different or significantly different because they were listening to that feedback and trying things. This doesn't feel to me like they're trying things. This feels to me like they are, not that they won't receive feedback and act on it. I'm not saying that, right? but but they this is pretty much what they want to put in the book. And the clock is running out. You know, there's a deadline to reach. So it'll largely be like this. So feedback, it's hard to know how much of it would be listened to. I don't know if that's the way you feel, if that at all contributes to your feeling. No, I don't think, I think, I think what you said is what I said just in a different way, okay. because I feel like not only are they done really, and they're just showing us some things, they were done in 2014. <laughs> uh -huh. And so I, 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 I gave them my feedback then, uh -huh. uh, both, you know, as a first tier, you know, line play yeah. tester, plus as a, you know, regular old play tester going along. Uh, I, I've already given them my feedback. I gave them my feedback 10 years ago. Yeah. And so now I just need to know, are all subclasses going to start at level three? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. You design accordingly. You know, yeah, I need yeah, to sure. know, oh, oh, fighters are going to now have this special thing that they can do with their weapons. Okay, I will need to keep that in mind as I design subclasses. Right. Uh, the one thing from what I've read so far is I, I've been worried. What I really am worried about is the power creep. Mm -hmm. Because you know as well as I, as, a, as an addition goes along, power creep is not just, well, for some people, it's a feature, not a bug, because <laughs> then you get to sell more books to people who want the stronger stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but it makes the game worse. 
power creep makes the game worse in the long run. There's, I don't think anyone would uh, deny that with any seriousness. And so because we're not getting a new game, because we're just getting a revised version, all we're getting is if you don't make it more powerful, people aren't going to like it or a certain segment, but a significant segment of the player base is not going to like it unless there is power creep. So then what do you have to do with monsters to make mm -hmm. up for that power creep? You have to make them harder. Then the backwards compatibility question comes into play. Well, if you you made your monsters harder because you made your character options stronger, then what do you do with the stuff that you said it's compatible with? Yep. Amen. Yeah, I I have been very concerned by that. And in theory, you know, every playtest document starts with a little block where we're told, don't worry about power that'll get sanded down later but i have worked with wizards long enough and had enough friends who were staffed there at various different years that a common story is that designer is amazing and also did not get why this thing was powerful because nobody in their home campaign breaks this kind of thing but in my home campaign they do and mm-hmm. this is totally going to break and and the more that you're playing up at the high level of you know, optimization, if you're providing that, the harder it is to tamp it back down in a reasonable way because you've created those opportunities and you've got to think of all the permutations in which that's going to go wild. And there are a number of things like that where, where I thought to myself, gee, I bet if we had the old fourth edition forums still up, the official D&D forums, people would be just tossing around ideas already breaking this unearthed arcana because it is so much more powerful than before. And if you ever, if you, if you would all end up at this level, then I really wonder what monsters are going to look like and, and encounter building rules. And are you going to change mm-hmm. that completely? You, but you can't change that completely. So, yeah, I, it's a concern I share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we will talk about more is our second bit of news, which was Jeremy Crawford's talk on the new Unearthed Arcana, including weapon mastery and class design. So on the 25th, uh, Jeremy reviewed weapon mastery. He also had some comments on the... Uh, on the core of the new class design. And let me say this. Jeremy is a great presenter. Mm. He He's smart. He's insightful as a game designer. He's great as a presenter. You know, he could tell me that they're going to rip my appendix out. And the way he <laughs> says it, I would be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I think yeah. that's a good idea. Just, yeah. just the way he presents it. Mm-hmm. Um, it Puts makes it hard for face. me to like yeah. Yeah. get to the words. He's yeah. He's like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that makes perfect sense that my appendix should be ripped out. Uh, so, so I, I, I just love listening. His vo- voice is very soothing mm-hmm. and his presentation is immaculate and, and I love it. Uh, and then I listen to the words behind that great presentation and I'm like, okay, deep breaths, I have written in the show notes, deep cleansing breaths in at least two places. I will let you guess where those are going to be. So what? Let's some of the things that Jeremy said. People might be wondering, how can you change a class dramatically and still work with the books that are already in print? And he right. said, we have designed all of the adventures for fifth edition so that the adventures are not aware of how a class functions on the inside. And as if you separate that quote from, I don't want to say reality because that sounds dismissive, but if you separate that quote from uh, a, a detailed look at it, it makes perfect sense. 
classes are classes, adventures are adventures, and it doesn't matter what goes on within the class because there's an output that then interacts with the adventure. Mm -hmm. However, I say that that quote is demonstrably false because both you and I have designed fifth edition adventures mm -hmm. and published by Wizards of the Coast. And I did so. I designed those adventures fully aware, painfully aware of how a class functions because I knew what certain classes not only could do, but will do over and over again. And I designed the encounters within that adventure to take that into account, to draw the best story and to draw the best game mm -hmm. out of those class features. So I, I, I want to push back against that statement. Well, and then I love the next, so I fully agree. And then I love the next quote, which is, <clears throat> it's hard for me to say these words. Class in fifth edition is a piece of content. It's not a piece of the system. And so long as we have maintained the system and may continue to maintain it in the 2024 rule books, you will be able to use the new content options with the books you already have. Hmm. Pregnant pause. Class in fifth edition is a piece of content. It, it, it hurts my soul a bit. And that it's not a piece of the system. I, 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 I saw that quote out of context <laughs> right before I went to my class. So I went to my class and I just wrote that small, you know, uh, class is not system, class is content on the on the board. And there are some people in my class who aren't familiar with D&D &D very much. And there are some who are like way into D&D, &D, designing their own stuff. And I said, this is something that just came from Jeremy Crawford. I don't have the context for it. But what do you mm -hmm. think? True or false? And I had people arguing both sides about it was or it wasn't. And it, we had a actually very good discussion on that. But what we came out with pretty much uh, as as a an agreement was that, yes, there is a system of D&D &D that operates outside of class, but class needs to integrate very closely with that system, so closely that it is practically impossible to separate the class structure from the system. That's great. I can't say it better than that. That's mm-hmm. Yeah. Except that I'd like it's to like class. saying that a, a, a CD right is not the same thing as a CD player. Mm -hmm. Yes, but without both of them working together, you're not going to get any music out of that. And for our younger yeah. uh, listeners, CDs are these little round discs <laughs> that you could put into a, a music player and get sound out of. They'll be all the rage in about twenty years. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. it, it it's I mean it's really fascinating and, and you know anybody can be quoted in a certain way and we may not love the quote but you know what is behind it in, in both of these statements is is what I struggle with right it's not just even the, the exact words or whatever but it's it's that concept that your class is not being designed in an integral way with all of the rest of the system or that you can interchange it in a way without it having this relationship. And, and I don't see that that's true 
in this edition at all. If if, you, if, if any edition that's been true, I don't know. But but um, right. Yeah. If you could if you could play D and D without choosing a class, I would say that's absolutely true. Right. Or, or uh, if but and, the and play experience we, is yeah. so different. It is. It, it's a super different experience based on what classes you have at the table and how. And it's not that the game will break if you say don't have a cleric, but it's a different experience, right? And 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 we design differently based on it. We design adventures differently, and we take into account all kinds of considerations when we're building things for it. Yeah, it, it was a really very interesting statement. And, hmm. And and I, the last thing I wanted to say was, you know, as a third party publisher, if you are if you went to Wizards of the Coast and said, I would I would like you to publish this thing that that my company or that I created and they would say, yes, we can publish this and this and this, but we're not going to publish your subclasses because subclasses are too, I would say, too tied to the system. They are too important to the game to just publish without a proper amount of design development and play testing. So we'll publish your backgrounds. We'll publish even feats or your adventures or your monsters even, but we're not going to not classes, definitely not, but not even subclasses that tells me that they are more integral to the system than not. Yeah. It's fascinating. Okay. that That's the part where <laughs> I need to deep yeah. cleansing breaths. Yeah. Deep cleansing breaths. Uh, well, I've the got last something that quote cleanses. from from oh, that. You've got another, yeah, you want to oh, talk about the last go quote? Ahead. No, no, I was going to move on, but we can. The last we can... quote. Uh, we will delve. Let's real quick. We will delve more into that. We will delve more into that the closer we get to the release of those books. Uh, and he says, and that once they know what a class will look like based on play testing and final design, they will look at how it compares to the 2014 version and address that and yeah that seemed like it was something important but i'm still trying to parse what exactly that means i mean um, it says to you know, he me said at one point that you're kind of like you're gonna design what you think it should be and later you're gonna compare and say how far did we get away from where we were and what do we need to do about that and that's sort of okay but i feel like like um that's something you do at an earlier phase when you're sort of, you know, just dreaming about what you want something to be, but, but that you'd, we'd already be at the process where you would be equating this. And so if you're going to leave it to the end, well, how far down the line are you waiting before you get to that step? Just seemed to me interesting from a design mm -hmm. perspective. It feels later in the process than what I would yeah. expect one would want to use, but not my area of expertise. Yeah. So. Yep, we will have a lot more to say about this uh, in future shows as we go through the the UA bit by bit. But you were talking about cleansing, Teos. You were talking about yes. cleansing. What there was news, what's the cleansing? News that cleansed me greatly was it was National Library Week, and the Washington Secretary of State celebrated this by showing off the Acquisitions Incorporated hardback book that we worked on uh with penny arcade and four wizards of the coast i mean that's amazing all and, i can say at this point mm -hmm. all i can say is is steve hobbs not not for governor <laughs> of washington not for president of the united states 
Steve Hobbs for Galactic Overlord. Galactic I'm, I'm, Overlord. I, he's got my vote. Uh, that that is appropriate mm-hmm. and very acquisitions incorporated. But the beautiful thing of this picture mm-hmm. of Secretary of State Washington, Secretary of Washington, uh, uh, Steve Hobbs holding uh, this the 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 Ack Inc book in in a library setting is it's available as a poster. <laughs> so if you follow the link we have, mm-hmm. or if you look it up on Twitter, you can print out this poster. To truly enjoy National Library Week as it was meant to be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now to some just small news about you know the business of D&D. Uh, Hasbro is reporting that D&D in the first quarter of 2023 has grown. And not, not just by a bit. It's grown quite significantly. While at the same time... Sales for all of Hasbro have declined 14% on a year-to-year comparison. So they made a billion dollars in quarter one, which was down 14%, but it did beat the consensus of only 878.4 million that Wall Street put on them. And of course, then shares went up because... Even though you declined, you didn't decline as much as we thought you would. So have money. Mm. Stock market is amazing. Yeah. What really? else did we learn, Teos? Well, yeah, consumer products fell 23%. So we've been seeing that. The traditional side of Hasbro is struggling greatly. Um, I mean, and, and I say that with a little bit of caution because there's a lot of non-traditional stuff that's failing too. But uh, overall, the whole of Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming increased 12%, and the entertainment segment revenues declined 19%. Magic the Gathering increased 16%. So as usual, it's hard to say exactly how much did D&D grow, but it it was said to have uh, grown. Um, The toy market is is diving. And so, you know, what does that mean? Um, it, 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 It may mean that there is still continued emphasis on D&D and what it's going to do. And it and it probably underscores the importance of the virtual tabletop endeavors they're doing. It, ins- it underscores the importance of the 2024 release, because this is all seen as part of that growth that must be fueled into continuing, right? Mm-hmm. And that is our news. Now we will get to our interview with Andrew and Morgan of Roll20. Hello, and welcome to our main topic today. We are talking all about Roll20, and we won't be talking about Roll20 in a vacuum because we have not one, but two very special guests here today (laughs) from Roll20. We have Morgan Buck and Andrew Sales. So with no further ado, could you introduce yourselves and let us know what you do for Roll20? Uh, Andrew, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I can go first. Uh, So um, I am the principal product manager at uh, Roll20, specifically in charge of the VTT. So what that that really means is not like, um, you know, I, 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 I control everything about it, but what, what a product manager really does is they, they help try to identify the biggest things that we should be working on. So I often tell people that like, if there is that thing that you wanted us to build and we just haven't done it yet, you're probably angry at me. <laughs> um, because uh, for some reason or another, I have prioritized something else over that. 
Um, and, and, and I, and I will say too, if you are angry at me about those things, I want to hear it. I want to hear what you, you have to say. So um, maybe in a nice way. Yeah, but maybe <laughs> in a, in a nice way, but you know, um, cool. yeah, all feedback is feedback. So that's good. Yeah, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm Morgan. I'm the CTO at Roll20, Chief Technical Officer. So uh, that's mainly on the tech side of things, uh, you know, choosing development strategy, hiring software developers, things like that. And then as of 2022, January of 2022, I'm now also uh, running the product discipline, which is Andrew's group. So that's all of the other product managers uh, like Andrew that uh, have, you know, uh, coverage of the other areas of our site, whether that's, you know, the you know character sheets, the compendium systems, the the um, marketplace, all of those sorts of things. That's fantastic. And I just wanted to ask real quick about your gaming history. Uh, so, you know, have you been involved on, in role playing games? And what's your what's your favorite game? And you know, what do you enjoy playing? Those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. I've um, I, I've been playing role playing games for a long time. Um, my mother introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons uh, AD and D when I was a kid. Um, and I remember playing that for, I, I remember sitting with all the books around me, just sort of like absorbing it as I went. Um, and I played many other games as I grew up, um, lots and lots of different games that were, weren't just D&D. Right now, I would say probably my favorite game is the uh, Fantasy Flight Star Wars game. Um, I really, really enjoy the the character progression in that game. The ability to sort of modify your character after every session is um I, I think it, it allows me to really be engaged with that game. So I love it. Uh, I started in 1989 uh, when I was seven years old with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness was my first TTRPG. Uh, my awesome. uh, best friend's older brother was running uh, a campaign and decided that he wanted to test out his adventures on me and my friend first. Uh, and that's how we got started. And that kind of ended up being sort of my in to nerd groups uh, throughout the rest of my uh, uh, like early uh, childhood, early adolescence uh, in in, um, in sixth grade. Uh, one of the guys in my advanced math class had the uh, second edition player's handbook and uh, couldn't figure it out. And he heard that I played TTRPGs. And so he brought it over to me. And so that's how I got to be in my first gaming group is I taught them how to play from the book because they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I um, my professional experience is mostly outside of TTRPG uh, until uh, Roll20. Before that, uh, I was mostly in video games. First in my mind is that's so cool that you started with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And now it makes me think like I want to meet someone who started with the Ghostbusters RPG. Like there's a list of like sort of like wild starts <laughs> that could be out there. And I think Mutant Ninja Turtles is one of them. That's awesome. Um so yeah. Roll 20, for anybody who's listening or watching this that doesn't know, is a virtual tabletop. And it's been around for a while. When exactly did it emerge in the industry? Uh, yeah. Um, so the, the, the actual kind of debut was with the Kickstarter in 2012. 
basically the story here is that the three founders, uh, Riley Nolan and Richard, they uh, they played D&D in college. When they got out of college, they uh, they were missing their old game. Riley was a software developer. He built a, a really uh, basic uh, VTT because they couldn't find one they liked at the time uh, and started running their game in it. And after a couple of weeks and finding out that it you know wasn't too bad, uh, they're like, well, I think more people would be used to this. They put up a Kickstarter with a $5,000 uh, goal. Uh, and they ended up hitting, I think around 40,000. Um, and yeah, launched then, uh, with the original Kickstarter backers as users. And then from there, you know, I think it was like three years later or something like 2015, they hit their first, uh, 1 million accounts. Uh, and so, you know, basically started off as a very small thing. Oh, Hey, some people might be interested in this. And then it became a business. And now at some point it was, I guess, acquired or, or received funding from the org group. Uh, and what is the org group and how does that relationship work? Okay. Uh, this is, so this is funny, actually. Uh, so the, um, the org group actually is just Richard Riley and Nolan. Um, and so at the time they had no idea that Roll20 was going to go blow up and be a successful business. They really only wanted to file for one LLC. So they tried to file with like a name that they felt they could do a bunch of other stuff. They tried uh, publishing a comic back in the time and a couple other things. Uh, the, or I think it was an or group. It was like Knights of Or or something like that was their World of Warcraft guild. Um, <laughs> so no, really that's just the original owners. And then they were doing DBAs for like their comics enterprise and for roll 20. Uh, since we came together with, um, with one bookshelf, um, we are now officially roll 20 LLC. Um, so no, no real relationship there. Just the, just the guys that founded the company. Oh, that's great. Thanks. I appreciate breaking that down. Cause I always wondered whether this was like an outside entity or something like that. Cause in my day job, that's how basically everybody ever worked for works. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, for the most part. Yeah. But for us, we're, uh, you know, we just got started from that Kickstarter and there hasn't been private investment in any way. We're just, we're still just independently yeah. owned. And, and Andrew, I know you're, you're a very recent hire having worked at D and D beyond before Morgan, how long have you been with roll 20? I started uh, in January of 2020, uh, so uh, just before uh, the pandemic hit. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's good to join a virtual uh, tabletop. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> For sure, yeah. So I've been really impressed with Roll20 in the last couple of years, especially. It feels like there there've been a, a a big increase in sort of strategic thinking, um, bringing in Ankit Lal as the CEO. Uh, and, and, and a lot of um, communication that happens on your blog around what you are doing, the functionality you're adding. Um, can you tell us a little bit about at, at the high level what the strategic changes feel like? What is it that Roll20 is trying to do differently than it was, you know, three years ago, five years ago? Yeah. Um, well, so I, I was kind of the, the tip of the spear of the owner sort of realizing that at a certain point they had gotten to a size where they really needed to pull some people with some outside experience in into leadership positions to try to start fleshing things out. And so, you know, I came in and I started like getting the infrastructure to scale up. I shifted team structures to something that was more industry standard to like help us get more work through the pipe. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, there were a couple of other folks that joined uh, the executive group that had, you know, some outside industry experience. Ankit first originally joined us as, um, as a as an advisor, uh, 
and just kind of was giving such strong uh, advice and had become became so instrumental in that role that eventually the owners said they wanted to offer him uh, the CEO position. Uh, I think everything that we're really doing here is sort of an extension strategically of, of what the owners wanted to achieve. You know, I think that they were always really passionate about having tons of vocal communication with the, with users. They were really passionate about constantly releasing new features and trying to keep people, uh, kind of constantly experiencing innovation. Um, and, to really try to create as smooth and as streamlined of an experience to like let just pe people just play. I think the real thing that it comes down to is that, you know, folks like Ankit and myself um, brought a little bit more um, uh, like broader industry experience to like help that scale up uh, so that it could happen across more surface areas with a bigger code base, with bigger teams. Um, but yeah, I mean, that still remains the focus. I think we really want to make sure that we're, kind of laser focused with our teams that we know exactly what each of them is working on, what the, what the outcome we want them to have at the end of the year is, um, what things we're kind of tracking towards to get to that. And then really like, especially trying to figure out how to take that original vibe of like when the company was four or five, six people and everyone was on the forums of like, well, now how do we push that out to like a distributed team system? How do we make sure that every team is having a dialogue with users specific to them. And, you know, I think, you know, Andrew's doing a great job with that being really, you know, talking, talking a lot and like starting to produce a dialogue about work we're doing on the VTT. I think our developers uh, on our sheet development side are also really good at getting out there and talking to people about what they've done and taking feedback about what's not working and responding to that in their daily work. And we're really just trying, trying to take those successes and, and replicate them across all of the teams so that, like there's a constant conduit, uh, like directly with the people who are working the thing on the things that people care about. That's that's good work. That that is good hard that, work. Uh, speaking to, speaking to of mergers, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of mergers and strategic changes, uh, Roll Twenty and some of the biggest news of the past couple of years in role playing game, uh, in the role playing industry, purchased merged with one bookshelf. Mm -hmm. Uh, how does that fit into the company's overall strategy? And what's the relationship like between those two companies? Uh, yeah. So um, let me see. So trying to rewind to when that was going down. Um, so we had just had this enormous growth spike um, that, you know, it was one of those like bittersweet things uh, with the pandemic that sucks that everybody is stuck at home. But like it was really cool to be able to be part of giving people an outlet and, and a way to be social during that. And we did see a, a ton of growth and we were kind of start, starting to set our sights to like what happens, uh, what, what happens later when people are looking to move back in person. And so one of the big things that we were thinking about is what are the different ways, what are the different user journeys that people can take to play tabletop role-playing games and sort of starting to imagine that you know, there was people playing in person, there's people playing virtually, more people shifted to virtual, but that, you know, we could really start to envision this kind of pathway of people starting to move between the two over time that, you know, people weren't probably going to go to games sick anymore, that um, uh, you start to see tables that wanted to incorporate people who lived far away, but maybe wanting to be in person whenever they could get away with it. And so we were thinking, you know, 
about all those pathways and really saw like a PDF marketplace and the ability to purchase like lots of books, but bring them with you on uh, uh, in that portable way. That was something that we wanted to do as part of that package. And, you know, I think in the same, in, in the same way, the folks on the OBS side were starting to think about what, how they're going to be involved in virtual play. And it, it really just made a lot of sense to like pair with kind of like the best in class marketplace for the area. Um, it was something that kind of just felt was mutually beneficial on both sides. So um, the way that happened, we we're taking our very sweet time <laughs> with pulling things together because everybody loves their work culture on both sides of the group. So uh, the first group that we pulled together was the executive leadership and we kind of figured out how all that group intermixed. And so now we have like one leadership group that's made out of the leadership groups of both of those organizations. And then, you know, just kind of moving through one department at a time, we've been gradually integrating. Uh, so, you know, right now, for example, on the teams that I have purview over, folks who are like specialized on working in the marketplace, uh, still pretty much just work inside of the marketplace. Uh, we've had a couple of devs start to cross over and cross train. And then the people who are working on the VTT side of the house, they're still mostly working the VTT side of the house, but we're starting to take the you know product managers and the lead devs from all those groups and starting to bring them together and have them report together and talk technology and next steps. And that's kind of step one uh, of that integration process. Um, and you know we've already kind of gone through those steps with the customer support, our user experience team and um, uh, marketing and content and publisher relations are already starting to work basically as a single team covering all those surface areas. So that's kind of what we're moving to over time, but we're also trying to do it in a way that's healthy and happy for all of the, uh, all of the employees. That's hard work to scale like that and to combine efforts uh, of different employees together. So uh, good, good luck with that. That's, that's a, that's a great thing to, to work on. <laughs> One of the things I've always been impressed that ties into sort of the personnel side of things is, is that the job postings over the last couple of years for Roll20 have been amazing. Uh, really some of the best that I've seen in the role-playing game industry. And we've talked about that on the show a number of times when we look at them, they tend to offer good pay, which is always nice and state the salary, which is always really nice. Take some of the guesswork out of it. Uh, but it also has a really nice, the, the job postings always have this really nice breakdown of like, here's what you can expect to be doing in X months and in Y months, which which speaks well to your approach towards towards personnel, uh, on top of the fact that every time I meet somebody from Roll20, I have a really nice time talking to them. So. <laughs> but kudos yeah, for that. Those, uh, those job descriptions are... Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, those job descriptions are the are the brainchild of our director of equity of inclusion, uh, Jose Ar Artiaga. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's exactly the goal. So I, I really feel yeah. great about uh, it having the desired impact, you know, and we're really trying to be extremely transparent and create equity wherever we can. And it's a challenging thing to achieve. Um, but, you know, that's just one little kind of sliver of how we're trying to get there. Awesome. You know, and, and the idea of the two companies working together, both companies have big fans, big user bases but also a lot of people who would say, wow, it's been around, the solution's been around for a while, right? OBS has had drive-through for a very long time and, and even the guild may feel young in some ways, but it's been around a fair amount of time too and it's built off of the same yeah. kind of infrastructure. Uh, Roll20, a lot of people have been using it and seeing it in its current incarnation. And we'll talk about some of the changes that are coming, but, 
But I, a thing I hear often is a fan will say, I really like using these mm. things, but you know, when do you make the decision or how do you approach the decision of, oh, should we just build a new thing based on everything we know mm. and launch that? Or should we refine what we have? And, and how, how do you, you know, what can you share with the, the average fan out there who's wondering about that, of, of how Roll20 looks and, and OBS look at those kinds of questions? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I really want to let Andrew take one of these, but uh, let, let me start with my dev strategy here. Um, I, uh, so I, I come from video games uh, and worked on a lot of live service video game products and some that have been through like some pretty substantial overhauls, refactors, visual uplifts, things like that. I'm a big believer in rebuilding the plane while it's in flight, which is challenging. I think it's really easy for someone to look at uh, a product and say, well, you know what, if we rebuilt that from scratch today, wow, it would be so much easier, especially as you know, a new CTO coming into a company that's been around for, I think, eight years before I got here. Uh, it's definitely been tempting. And there are some places that we've, that we've gone and done it. But I think almost every single time you do that, you, uh, you're, you're going to underestimate how many features there are that exist that people rely on that they care deeply about. And you get kind of stuck in a place where you've rebuilt it, but there's 20% of features that you don't have covered. Is it okay to release now? Are people going to be willing to adopt? Okay, well, now we got to 15% to 10%. Um, and it's very difficult to satisfy both people who are ardent longtime users and as well as people who are trying to use the new thing. So my philosophy really is to try to choose technologies that slot in well as an additional step and figure out how you can push those new technologies and that new style of architecture bit by bit through a platform in a way that's constantly releasing new value to users. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, on the back end, uh, on the front end for our, our new front end UI, we chose Vue over React. Not that we necessarily prefer Vue to React, but Vue's very good at plugging in in tiny little bits and components and gradually taking over a page. And so that's kind of our approach to everything is how can we inject a piece of quality, kind of inoculate the system to how this new piece of technology is going to fit in and then release new features to users as that technology gradually overtakes the old technology and you're, and you're left with something better in the end. That's also not a perfect process uh, and can sometimes take a lot longer than just doing the, the rebuild, but it, it keeps the product from just going dark and not releasing anything mm -hmm. for a while and... Um, and can still get you that goal as long as you're disciplined about it. Yeah, from from a product perspective, I, I would say too, it's it's a very similar sort of thought pattern. Often I'll ask myself, like, um, uh, it, it is the desire of every tech team to make small iterative improvements as you go. But inevitably what will happen is as you make choices about the next step that you want to take, you will start to find yourself shifting one direction or another when you really want to go this direction. We want to go this direction, but we're starting to go here. And so when you ask, like, how do you know um, when is it time to sort of look at a larger change is when you start to say, like, either we're not going where we want to go or where we want to go is now different. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we need to sort of try to right align those things. That's where you start taking mm -hmm. steps back towards that line. And, and I think that's kind of where we find Roll20 at today is we have made a lot of iterative changes over the years and have gr grown our user base and our feature um, base as a part of that. 
um, as you inevitably do, start to realize that there are lots and lots of things that Roll20 can do. But um, we want to make sure that we are taking small steps and even bigger steps towards the back towards the original goal of this is easy to use. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, ease of use in our games mean it is easy for us to play the game that we love. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll, I'll often say, um, sometimes when using digital tools in role-playing games, it feels like you use the, you play the digital tool and the digital tool plays the game for you. Mm. It's our desire to make sure that you are just playing the game and the digital tool just fades into the background and it helps you accomplish that goal. That's great. Right? So that's our focus. We want to make sure that people are playing good, fun, engaging games. Um, and the tool you use to make that happen fades into the background as much as possible. Uh, but if there's a piece of our tech that you're frustrated with, chances are we're in the midst of swapping it out. <laughs> the evidence is probably there if you know where to look. Um, but, you know, it's all kind of a work in progress. What, what do you see as Roll20's strengths and weaknesses right now? Um, so the biggest strength that I think Roll20 has, and it was one of the one of the reasons that I um, decided to join Roll20, um, is that it? I I believe Roll Twenty is the is one of the best positioned tools today to be able to affect the role playing game market and industry as a whole. Um, I believe that uh, the role playing game industry will be dominated by the next ten years through tech, through technology, and how technology modifies and changes the way we play the game. And I think Roll Twenty is best positioned to be able to influence that as we move forward through all role-playing games. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the biggest strengths for Roll20 is um, our ability to improve every game out there, no matter what the rule set is. Um, and that's, um, boy, that's that mission is directly aligned with what I want to do for the rest of my career, um, okay. is, is improve role-playing games as we go. Great. And I've got a note in, later on in the show notes, but um, but I'll, I'll bring it up now, which is that I, I really love what used to be the the OR report that was published. And I'd love to see it published again, where where Roll Twenty would would put out a you know here's what people are playing and a number of games and and um, a number of players, and and it's really fascinating because it shows, of course, the dominance of D and D, which is no shock to anybody who understands the role playing game industry, but also the huge breadth that Roll20 covers in all of these different games. And, and I love seeing the ups and downs where you know, a game from Brazil uh, will, will emerge on the market in Roll20 and create a big explosion of players that are coming in from, from different countries and that are trying it in the US. Uh, and, and then you know, that might slow down and then Call of Cthulhu rises back up and so on. But you see all these different games represented in the platform, which is really important for the hobby, absolutely. Yeah, and and I I hope that digital tools will continue to take lesser known games and give them the, a platform where they can really shine. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that we have seen um, many things lead to success in a game, and one of the one of the big ones, not just uh, sort of brand recognition. I'll throw that in one category, but one of the other big ones is a well supported tool set has has really been correlated to game success. And I, I hope that as we can better support more games more easily and allow people to, to play and make more games through a digital tool set, we'll see a lot more games reach higher levels of popularity. 
And how does that tie into the the weaknesses you would say? I mean, I know it sounds like an interview question, like, what is your weakness? But but you know, what is it that you you look at Roll Twenty, you know, working there every day, and you go, "Gee, these are the things we want to work on." Like, well, what's what's in that category? Yeah, I I think that um, it, it's sort of an unavoidable um, strengths and weaknesses often come hand in hand. You're really good at something, and as a result, you're also not good at another thing that's related to it. And implicitly, um, I think that um, if you start to take a look at some of the biggest digital tools out there, what you start to realize is that. Um, uh, bespoke support for one game can have a huge impact on its popularity. But there are thousands of games out there. In fact, Roll20 has over 1,200 different character sheets. Um, that is a lot of games. And the amount of money that it takes to become a bespoke system for every single game, is it takes a lot. <laughs> it takes a lot. Yeah. Um, so our our weakness is we can't, it is difficult for us to be bespoke for every single game out there. Um, and, and that is, that means that we become more and more generic for a lot of the long tail games, the games that are, have lesser of an audience, which honestly is something that we are, um, I personally want to try to, to fix as we get better and better. I, I think that there are ways that we can create better support for those long tail games, allow greater customization as we go. But the, the reality of it is the more time you spend on one specific system, the more time, more, the easier it is going to be to play that one system. Mm -hmm. um, and Roll20 is focused on all of them, which means it becomes difficult sometimes. Um, and sometimes you're like, well, why don't, why can't you just support this one specific rule from this rule set? Well, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why we can't right now. Um, and so that, that becomes the, the weakness is our, mm. our, our desire to be able to support all role-playing games often means that we have to be a lot more generic than some games deserve. Sure. sure also, you know, we, uh, we started as a system that was um, tokens on a grid and not much more. And at this point in time, there are a lot of features. Some of them are, are quite advanced and hard to learn how to use. And all of those has been built up organically over time. I think that leads to another weakness is that right now our, uh, our user interface exposes so much optionality, so many different ways that you can interact with it, so many different ways that you can set things up. It's pretty daunting for new users to come in and figure out what the most important components are. Uh, and so that's a big thing that we're thinking about a lot more. I think we're going to talk about it a bunch more in, in this interview too, is uh, you know, really uh, how do you have a user interface that both supports advanced features, a ton of customization, being able to go deep on a game system, but also is easy to absorb for first-time users and can let you kind of step into uh, the experience at the level that you want to engage with it. And that's something I hear uh, a lot. Because we of all our... know. Go ahead, Sean. Go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> oh, I, I was just going to say, um, at, at, from our data, it shows that Roll20 is one of the easier VTTs or virtual tabletops that are out there. Um, there are probably easier ones. In fact, I, I can think of a couple that make it a little easier. Um, but And there are definitely ones that can make it more complicated with more options. But in our desire, we want to make sure we can get to that level of ease of use along with customized support for everything. And that's really what is my my personal desire for a lot of a lot of the things that we are doing. But also Roll20's desire is to is to get to better support and ease of use at the same time. 
Yeah. Both engineering wise and, you know, creator wise weaknesses are also opportunities. And I have a feeling that you are going to take advantage of those opportunities very soon. So can you talk about some of the changes that you have coming to the system in order to take advantage of those opportunities? Yeah. So we've talked a little bit, we've hinted at for a while um, that Roll20 is is looking at how we can make big changes in this direction. And um, one of the things that we're um, getting ready to announce or are, are announcing is uh, a new toolbar redesign um, where we take that left side toolbar and we redesign it um, to be a lot more in line with what we feel like people should be experiencing through the, the, um, uh, through the UI, the, the um, VTT. Um, the, one of the biggest pieces of information that we we looked at was in a recent um, research blog post that uh, my colleague and friend Brittany wrote that really looked at um, comparing our old UI to our new UI with specific tasks that relate to like being able to create a map or understand which layer you're on even. Um, and we've seen significant success in, in, in the new UI making it easier for you to know, hey, what layer am I on? And how do I accomplish this create a map task? Um, and that gives us a lot of hope. Um, we're going to take small steps, right? So although we are taking corrective steps to go back towards a more ease of use redesign of the entire VTT, we're going to be taking small steps in releasing it and getting feedback from people. So that's our that's our biggest thing that we're doing is essentially we want to allow people to opt into this new thing, tell us what they think and see if uh, if it is something that actually improves their games. And if it is, we start we start pushing it out to more people and we start making better changes and we start moving on to other tools that we're going to redesign. It is our hope that uh, eventually you will see an entirely new uh, VTT from Roll20. And when you look at them side by side, um, uh, many months from now, I can't tell you when that's going to be done, <laughs> but um, many moons from now, you will see, oh, wow, Roll20 really has changed a lot in how it looks. Um, and it is a lot easier to use. What's the best way for folks who are hearing this to follow along? Is it the, the blogs that you've been putting out periodically? Is it somewhere else? Yeah, actually, we just released a landing page that will be a sort of centralized location for all of this information. It's going to introduce the idea that Roll20 is going to be releasing a new designed VTT. It's going to introduce the idea that we are doing it with our users in mind. Um, and, and in fact, in a lot of ways, we are we need our users to be able to adopt it for us to actually move on to our next phase. Um, and uh, it will show what have we changed and what are we looking at changing in the immediate future? Um, so sort of a, a future roadmap. Um, we can give you the link to that um, in the show notes and awesome. uh, people can yeah. kind of follow along there. It'll be a one-stop shop for while we are redesigning the VTT where you can kind of learn everything, see the new UI even, um, interact with it, give us feedback about what you think about it, or maybe catch the next sort of live demo if there's one or something like that. Yeah. Awesome. And while it certainly won't be as uh, as involved or in depth as what Andrew's going to do with the landing page, uh, we're also always putting out blasts of this on our social media. So following Roll20 on um, 
on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. We'll give you all of the, you'll get links and little videos and mm-hmm. things like that whenever we've got something new to look at. So that's a, a like a lighter touch way if you want to stay on top of what's new. And then yeah. to, to what we said earlier on, uh, really trying to get all of our teams out and engaging folks more uh, either on social media or on our own forums. Uh, and so especially, you know, Andrew's team, uh, that the forums are going to be a great place to come in and engage as well. If you've got yeah. feedback, comments, want to engage in the dialogue. So we mentioned Absolutely. to the folks on our Patreon that that we were meeting with you and there was a lot of excitement because there are a lot of users there. Um, and and one of the things that came up often was, you know, how do we get feedback to, to Roll20? And we, we've given you uh, in our show notes a, a number of questions that we're passing on to you from them because you had asked for that kind of uh, feedback. So, so we're gonna we're not gonna cover it on this recording, but but you'll you'll get to see that and and, and answer back if you're so willing. Um, but but a question that came up often was, where should I be as a Roll Twenty user to provide my feedback? Is it best for me to be on the forums? Do I hmm. you know what is what is where do you like to see that feedback come in? What's easier for you? Yeah, I think that's an interesting. Well, first I would say. Uh, if you are um, a patron of Teos and Sean on Mastering Dungeons, apparently you can give them questions and they'll give it to us. So that's <laughs> one way to do it. Um, that uh, the best way. I'm, the best way. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, uh, you can route that whole process if you want to. No, I'll, I'll ultimately, um, our we we do have centralized places on the forums is a really great place. Mm-hmm. We also follow like Reddit pretty heavily and uh, Facebook groups and things like that, but. Um, providing feedback on the forums is a is a great way to sort of be able to get directly to us. So if you're looking for that, that's fine. But ultimately, what we're really focused on is making sure that we are collecting feedback in all the places where it's left. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes people are not, um, <laughs> they leave feedback in a lot of different places that are easy for them, that are convenient for them to be able to get into, right? I don't want someone to have to create a Reddit account just to give us feedback. Mm-hmm. And so our team is is really looking at all of these different places. So if you're looking for a centralized place that we'll see every time, the forums is a good place. Putting in a help uh, request ticket is, is also a good way to do that. But ultimately, we're most likely already listening out there and trying to find you. If you want to contact us directly, you can actually look through our forums and find, I've put out a couple of links around uh, around specific areas. You can find my calendar there um, and you can even contact me and put in a, a, a session on my calendar and, I'll, and we'll talk for 30 minutes about mm-hmm. whatever it is that you have ideas about. I, w- I wanna hear what you have to say, um, even if it sometimes is, is painful for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's great so um, so switching uh, for for a second from the from the user end to the creator side uh we have as as you said many hundred uh, uh character sheets types mm-hmm. there if you're a creator and you want to get your your goods onto roll 20 how do you do that what are the steps who do who do you talk to uh yeah so First, uh, first off, we've got a lot of help desk documentation. I can send links along for that for getting started as a creator. And that's for um, smaller creators that are looking to just get started on the marketplace, selling content. Uh, we also have a, uh, a creator's... Um, oh, I'm going to blank on it now. Come on. it's Everybody uses this. Discord. 
There we go. We have a creators discord uh, where we've got members of our of our creator support team that are constantly engaging and, and ask and answering questions and other creators can help and answer questions. Uh, and then email sent in. I think I think we can send you all of these links. Um, we we uh, we generally gather information about new publishers that want to get involved through email. We've got a, a publisher relations team that focuses on setting every publisher that comes to us up with a particular point of contact that they can reliably use and getting them into the system and, and figuring out how we're going to work together. I know on the uh, on the D and D side, the the DMs Guild integration and drive through integration has been a big part. Where now, when you sell a product uh, and that PDF exists, you can purchase a version that's enabled on Roll Twenty, and in Roll Twenty, mm -hmm. you can now see the PDF inside uh, of of the uh, of the virtual tabletop, which is very cool. Um, but also, there's the the encouragement of with drive-through being able to sell um, your a VTT version of, of your product. It cre creates the the desire for a lot of creators to be able to say, "Okay, I've published an adventure. I've got it, say, on on the DMs Guild, and I want to have that in the virtual tabletop. So I should make a virtual tabletop version of it. You know, option one is the PDF, but option two is to go into that greater. I want to have it as a playable experience." and as a module that can be purchased. But I think as I've spoken to creators and, and they've spoken to me before when I told them that I was going to, we were going to have you on, they said it can be really hard to do that implementation, to set up that adventure in, in Roll20. Uh, a lot of hours of work. Um, it may not be the strong suit of a creator to set that up or, or a supplement creator if they're trying to do that. And hiring someone is expensive. And is that something that you are looking at changing uh, in any foreseeable future? Yeah, I, um, I can say right now that we do not have anything on the immediate future to affect mm -hmm. any uh, big change there. But I can say that we... Um, We've, I, I talk to a lot of creators and a lot of the problems that they have, and I, I hear that pain. <laughs> I really do. Um, and um, I've experienced it myself, even. Um, I, one of, so we talked a little bit about trying to better support games as um, all the way into that long tail, right? Mm -hmm. Taking a lot of those, um, um, those sort of indie kind of games and giving them a platform that they deserve. Part of that is making tools that they can bring their content to people in a well-supported and easy to use fashion. We're not gonna be able to accomplish this just by changing up a toolbar and making things a little bit easier to navigate around a map. Mm -hmm. Ease of use across our entire platform is going to have to include revamping and allowing creators to more easily put in content to make it easier for their customers to be able to use that stuff too. Um, so that is a part of the, the, the entirety, but at this moment, we're really focused on the VTT UI rework, um, sure. and the, the things that we do there. So I, I can't give you any like hard yeah, yeah. fast no, answer when fine. that will happen, but, but it's good it is a focus. Yeah. It is something that we really want. Well, and this, uh, this problem too, isn't just content creators or people who are looking to sell something on the marketplace. This, this exact same problem set is facing, 
you know, independent GMs who want to run their own content, who want to have their own homebrew campaign setting or run their own adventures and modules that they've created themselves. I think it's the same kind of challenge is hitting people uh, with different use cases. Um, and, and like Andrew said, although we're really focused on the UI rework right now and some specific things uh, on the map and the VTT itself, uh, this is probably the topic that Andrew and I talk about the most. Mm. We've got a, a lot of ideas brewing um, mm. and uh, hoping to pick that up pretty soon. Yeah, it, it, is a, it is a big passion for me, for sure. I, I, will, I will add also, too, that a lot of people are um, interested to, that have never done it before, never created their own content mm -hmm. for Roll20, often yeah. are surprised to find that the very tools that you use to plan your games and create those are the tools that you use to make the thing. So we have a team of people that make, uh, when, when when a new book is published, they will take that book and they'll put it into a game and make maps in a very similar way that you make maps today. Uh, the same dynamic lighting tools, those kind of things. So it, by improving those tools, we improve the overall experience for why you play your game, the, the, the homebrew stuff that you make, but we also improve the creation tools that allow people to put in more content into the future. Um, and so that's, it's sort of a twofer. Yeah, for sure. And and do I understand correctly that during the pandemic, there was a time when uh, there were more players from Italy than anywhere else? Is that is that true? Uh, not quite, but we did. So uh, I'd only been here for a couple months. We were really just starting to do the major infrastructure upgrades that we were planning because we were already kind of projecting a year that was going to be bigger than the year before and wanted to get uh, infrastructure ready to handle and scale, uh, which thank, thank goodness we did in time. But uh, the way it happened was uh, we had a bunch of alerts go off at night, came in, we thought we were being DDoSed. Um, and it took us, uh, you know, probably 20, 30 minutes of investigation before we found out that almost all of the uh, IPs that were coming in uh, were from Italy. And it took then, you know, another little bit of a bit for us to put two and two together and realize that Italy had just gone into lockdown and it was like a Friday night, like peak playtime there. And so uh, <laughs> definitely during that period of time, it was it was a normally off peak time for us, but it was a peak time in Italy. Uh, it was definitely way larger than we were expecting traffic wise. <laughs> and I'd say it. it Traffic from Italy was big for maybe another week or so, but for us that was kind of like the, uh, yeah. you know, the moment in the uh, in the natural disaster movie where everyone looks and there's the wave and it's coming, <laughs> like oh, because this is going to be everybody in a couple of weeks, and that we really like just started scrambling uh, to try to get the infrastructure in shape ready to to handle the the rest of the wave. <laughs> That's amazing. So do you work uh, on trying to serve international markets and, and, and how do you do you work to do that if you are? Yeah, so historically, we've used crowdsourced translations in the early days that that fit our need well enough. But that's definitely not the case anymore. During any given period of time, 30% of our traffic is from outside of the United States and that number is always growing. We see, you know, during the night when all of uh, when uh, North American players aren't playing, we still have hundreds of thousands of people that are online ac accessing the platform. So this is something that we're really 
heavily focusing on in the next couple of years. Uh, we've already moved over to professional translations. We have seven languages so far translated, but we're looking to cover a pretty substantial swath of Europe, Asia, South America with the languages that we cover and provide first tier support. We've got some of our per first publishing arrangements. We've actually got a lot of publishing uh, uh, agreements with uh, international publishers from outside of North America. And we're looking to increase that over time. So there's a really big focus here. And uh, I can't get into all of the details of the things that yeah. we're going to be rolling out. But yeah, we're really looking to give the our, our best experience to a much wider group of people. That's great to hear. Now, and we're, we're, we've covered a lot of good topics. And one thing that came up a lot when I was speaking to folks uh, on the on our Patreon was their question around the VTT landscape, which of course has had recent news with D&D &D, uh, discussing their, their um, uh, questions for, for virtual tabletop or they're, they're looking into the virtual tabletop space. Um, one of the questions that came up over and over again is, are you gonna make your fire bars, fireballs really sizzle? So that, um, you know, because that's the key to all successful virtual tabletops is a really good fire effect I hear, is that true? <laughs> All right, let, let me try that question a different way, which is another question that came up often was um, with with D and D acting in in this space. How do you work with wizards as both partner because you are partners, right? You you have an agreement to to uh, carry D and D products officially, and and that's a huge boon to Roll Twenty and 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 on drive through with the DMs Guild. Um, how do you work with D&D both as a partner and someone who wants to enter in that virtual tabletop space? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think we mostly keep it pretty compartmentalized. You know, I think we're seeing the advanced looks at their virtual tabletop like everyone else is. We think that there's certainly for some users and use cases, it's going to be a great solution. We think that what we're doing is still going to be a great solution for a lot of people. And I think just more broadly, even outside of Wizards, I think we we broadly look at competition as a, as a positive thing. I think it makes the entire industry better. It gives more people more options to address the right use case. The number of people who are playing tabletop role-playing games is increasing. The number of people who are willing to play virtually is increasing. I think there's a lot of space for a lot of different options and solutions to be at play here. And, and it makes all of us better. It makes the experience for players better. It makes things better for publishers. So, you know, I, I think that's not something that I have. Uh, I mean, obviously it's on our radar. It's something we're thinking about. It's something that we think about when we figure out what features we're going to be targeting and things like that. But it, we're not having an existential concern. Mm -hmm. uh, and so really, we're focused on our partnership with Wizards through the, the things that we're partners on, which is, you know, focusing on what's the content, what are we releasing, what's coming out when, what feature sets are people who are playing those games, do we believe they're most interested in, the people who are choosing our platform, what's the best way to continue to serve their engagement with the games that Wizards releases. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, nothing too spicy there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> Can I ask, your, is your agreement, and, and Andrew, I'd love to hear what you have to say, but is your agreement with Wizards uh, the same as it is with any other publisher, or is, or is it sort of special and different? Um, I wouldn't, not, not in a substantial way. We do do individual negotiations with every publisher that we go into agreements with. And some of them have, you know, parent companies and things like that. And have certain things that, that are necessary for them to be able to be satisfied with it. 
Um, but, you know, it, uh, you know, largely we're having very similarly formed agreements with everyone that we're working the with. The big question that, that folks ask is, do these agreements, whether it's with Wizards or someone else, uh, do these, la how are they typically structured? Is it through an addition? Is it a time frame? Like, do, you know, does a fan need to worry about, oh, five years from now, the agreement with, uh, you know, any RPG ends and, and then there isn't additional support? Or is it, yeah, like, like is, are these things usually reapproved on a time basis or are they focused on an addition? How does it work? Uh, ooh, I, I actually might not have all of the information. I don't know these contracts super intimately myself, so I might not be That's the right fair. person to give you a really detailed answer. You know, I mean, I'll, uh, uh, all of these contracts have, you know, things in it where, where, where folks could choose to not continue to engage in the agreement, but that's not something that we're worried about that we foresee happening. There's no like time bomb ticking time bomb in any of our agreements where people have to worry about things suddenly getting pulled. I mean, I think business entities always have the, the, the freedom to be able to make changes to the agreements that they have ongoing at, at various cadences, but there's no like uh, when X happens, we're in danger and it may not get renewed, that sort of thing. Th those aren't the types of negotiations that we're having. For D and D specifically, and this is my last hard question. Twenty twenty four five e. Does that require a new agreement, or is it just automatically, you know, whatever gets published will be available on on roll twenty? We're already making our steps to support five e revised. There's, there's again, there's no, there's no time bomb there. Gotcha. Uh, everything that we have in mind right now is around, uh, is around that continuing on. Fantastic. Those are all the major questions well, I had, though I could probably speak at, to you for another hour. Yeah, we are about like, at that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure we could. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to mention uh, while you have the microphone? Anything that we should have asked that didn't? Uh, anything that you wanted to to give us as a parting uh, shot? Hmm. Well, uh, I, I guess I would say um, I am interested to hear uh, in a future Mastering Dungeons episode, what you all think of the the new toolbar as it is released. Um, and I will be watching uh, specifically to, to what things I can do to, to make it better. Um, um, I would add on to that. If if others have feedback, we want that feedback. We'll give links in the, the show notes to the main landing page for the, the VTT redesign um, uh, where they, where you can, it'll direct you right into my inbox so I can, can read it and, and hear that feedback. So that's awesome. I think that's the, that's the biggest thing that I yeah. personally want is, uh, as I want to, I want to be able to hear what everybody has to say. Yeah. It was really cool seeing the redesign. Uh, I, I really enjoyed how the, the layers are being done. And so I think folks, when, when they see that will, will really appreciate it. That's a big win, uh, in terms of ease of use. But but I'll also say for anybody out there who is dabbling in Roll20, or even if, if you're climbing up the mastery ranks, a really great thing to do is to find uh, the virtual uh, games being offered by Baldman Games through the Yawning Portal website. The people on there who run games month after month in Roll20 are so good at it. And I love just being a part of a game on, on Yanni Portal so I can see how well they use Roll20 when they reach that level of expertise and they've got all the macros running and all this. It's just, it's really great to see. And that's that's something that I think Roll20 does really well. 
uh, is just when you want to get to that level of expertise, right? You you have a lot of capacity to expand there. That's really cool. Yeah, um, I guess the only thing I'd, I'd really think to add here, I mean, this is part of the reason why we're we're seeking out being on podcasts like this, and and I think you see it underlining a lot of the answers we uh, had to your questions. We're really uh, striving very hard right now to, uh, I think in the last couple of years, to your point, we focused really hard on on having blog posts and things like that to get our messaging out there. But I think one of the major things we're trying to accomplish this year is to turn that from a monologue into a dialogue and find a better way to be consistently engaging with our users of, of all different types, whether, you know, uh, homebrew, people just getting started, people who've been on the platform forever, pro GMs, publishers, content creators, you know, I think all of these people, we're really looking to be able to engage more personally, let them know who we are, who the people are that are working on the teams that they're on. We've got the forums for that right now, but I would really love to hear more from, uh, you know, your listeners and from anybody else about how best we could be out there directly engaging and getting feedback from them in a healthy way and really keeping everybody up to speed on what we're doing. We've got a lot of crazy stuff we're working on this year that I'm pretty excited about. And, you know, I'm thinking about how we're going to talk to people about it when those things are getting ready for release and would love, uh, would love suggestions about where people would want to see us engaging. Right. Thank you. And to, to end this, to end this, uh, where can people find either you or Roll20 specifically on social media or other places to follow the news? Uh, yeah. So on, uh, let's see, on Twitter, we are Roll20 app and Drive Through RPG. Uh, I'm Geek Stress. Uh, it looks like Geek Stress, but that's not what I was originally <laughs> going for. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, I think it's similar handles for all of those things on Instagram, TikTok. Yeah, for me personally, um, AC Searles. So um, you can find me on Twitter as AC Searles. Uh, we'll put it, I'll, I'll give it to you all to put it in the show. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. All right. Uh, any last words, Teos? Nope. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Morgan, for taking some time with us today. And we look forward to gaming with all of our friends on Roll20. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye. Well, what a great interview. I thought we got some good information. Absolutely. They did not, uh, you know, uh, put up a virtual tabletop image when I asked the hard questions. So I was really happy. Yeah, I mean they they answered everything that they could, which I thought was good. And you know, a funny story, I uh, I played this past weekend with the gaming group that I originally played with when I was like 10 years old. And we played via Roll20 because people are all over the planet. And the people who had not hadn't played since first edition days were absolutely stunned by Roll20. They mm -hmm. were like, wow. You know, and and our DM had had uh, some macros set up so it did automatic things. And they were just blown away. This was like <laughs> the greatest thing they'd ever seen. And we're going to continue to do it you know, every few weeks. Awesome. But you know, that's the importance of something like Roll20, bringing, not only bringing the game to people, but bringing people together to be able to play, uh, whether they're new or whether they're, they've been playing forever, whether they're old friends or new. Uh, it's just such an important part of this entire hobby. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And so it's great. It's great to see the the work that they're doing. 
I'm really glad because it, for a while it it, it was a, a there wasn't a lot of kind of energy and a lot of news about what they were working on. It was just sort of the platform, and the platform is the platform. And for the last you know several years, it's been really a focus on change and hiring and reinvigorating, and that's awesome. Great to see. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did ask a few questions of them from people from our Patreon. And so we want to thank you for listening. And we want to give a special thanks to all of our patrons. Uh, thank you to our Master of Dungeons supporters. We give a special shout out to our Master of Realms supporters in our show notes. And to those Masters of the Multiverse patrons, well, we're going to talk about you right now. We're going to talk about you, Graham Ward, James Walton, Matias Valero at Twin Portals, Joe Tyler, Krishna Simonsa, I don't know how to say, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chad Lynch, Travis Lee, Brian King, Sean Hurst, pa uh, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Darren Chandler, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and the lessening and lessening Evil John, John Carney. Great to hear from you this week, Evil John. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our patrons. And if you, yes, you like the show, please do consider becoming a patron of our show at patreon.com slash mastering D&D. If you can't support us financially, we understand it would help if you would leave a review of the show on either Apple Podcast or via whatever means you use to listen to the podcast. Because the more reviews we get and the better those reviews are, the wider our reach. So thanks again for your support. Teos, where can people find your work on mm. social media? Find me at alphastream.org. What about you, Sean? Where can where are you hiding? Uh I'm on Twitter at Sean Maru and I'm on Mastodon uh, at uh, tabletop.social. Uh, uh, we're on YouTube. You you do you did know that, right? We're on YouTube yeah. at YouTube, Mastering YouTube. Dungeons. We're we're all over the place. Yep. And you can leave us reviews on YouTube as well. Subscribe and and uh yeah, we've we've hit a benchmark, didn't we? Didn't we hit one hundred thousand uh views? List a hundred thousand podcast downloads since october oh okay so that doesn't count Ooh. previous to october and it doesn't count the uh youtube yeah. stuff so that's that's a, that seems like a lot i wow. think it was all my mom though so i'm not sure well yeah it was probably both our moms so oh, you know, fifty thousand each sounds about right <laughs> thanks moms thanks moms so teos mm. we just hit some news and we just Talked about Roll20 with people who are in the know. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do now? Well, I'm actually going to wait till the next time that my kids tell me I need to do something for the family. And I'm going to explain that I'm actually not part of the system. I'm just content. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm going to tell tell my family, yeah, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it on Roll20. Mm, nice. 